about uh, the departure of Mr. Ronnie Barclay. The arrangements is everything will take place tomorrow. The visitation will take place here in the church between 12 and 1.45. And then the funeral begins at 2 o'clock. And I did uh, put some sign. If you still have some blankets, please remove because uh, we need this place to clear, be cleared up. Let's pray. Amosi, eternal and everlasting Father, we are thankful this evening for your love and your mercy. Thankful for your kindness to each and every one of us assembled here. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that God the Holy Spirit will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this evening. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. Exodus chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. He reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Straight out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Now this section of Exodus chapter 14 verses 26 through 28 is indeed concerned with the end of the saga of the Lord's judgment on the Egyptians. The Lord began his judgment on Pharaoh and his people with the plague of turning their water into blood, followed by nine other plagues, the climax of, of which is the death of the firstborn in Egypt. With the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh was forced then to release Israel from bondage. And so one would have thought that that was the end of God's judgment on Pharaoh and his people, but that was not the case. There was one more action of God on Pharaoh and his people that was intended for God's glory to be displayed before the Israelites and to be recognized by the Egyptians. Now this action of God is the destruction of the Egyptian army as the Lord promised Moses as recorded. Look at Exodus 14 that we are studying. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 reads, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, that I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Thus then the section of Exodus 14, 26 through 28 is the fulfillment of this promise to Moses by the Lord of gaining glory 
for himself through the destruction of the Egyptian army. We, of course, indicated that this section of Exodus is the end of the saga of God's judgment against the Egyptians, as it is uh, in relation to the, of course, uh, releasing Israel from bondage. Now, after this section, we no longer have any record in the book of Exodus of any action of God towards the Egyptians as a nation. Instead, what we have is God's dealing with his people that he freed from bondage in Egypt. Now, be that then as as we have indicated, this section is concerned with the destruction of the Egyptian army and the end of the saga of God's judgment on Egypt as he freed his people from bondage in Egypt. As a narrative, Exodus chapter 14 verses 26 through 28 conveys that God's total destruction of the Egyptian army involved his instruction to Moses and Moses' obedience of it that led to the drowning of the Egyptian army. Now this summary of the section leads to a simple message we believe the Holy Spirit wants us to convey to you. Now this message is this. God's decided judgment or punishment is inescapable. Again, God's decided judgment or punishment is inescapable. Now our use of the phrase decided judgment is to indicate that the judgment or punishment that God has decided to bring about on a nation or an individual. That is why we use that word, the expression decided. So when God decides in his good pleasure to judge or punish a nation or an individual, then that judgment is inescapable. Now it should not be difficult to see how this message is derived from our passage since the Lord announced to Moses in the passage of Exodus 14 verse 4 that we cited of the uh, destruction of the Egyptian army that is fulfilled in the passage before us. So anyway, we will expound this uh, message then based on two propositions. A first proposition is that God's decided judgment usually involves instruction or instructions to his chosen agent that he uses in his judgment. In other words, that he gives instruction to agent that he will use. Now this proposition is derived from the Lord's instruction to Moses introduced with the sentence of Exodus 14 verse 26 that reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now this instruction of the Lord to Moses was soon after the Israelites had completely crossed the Red Sea on a dry ground. That this is the case is reflected in the word then that begins the verse in the NIV. Now the Hebrew text begins with a Hebrew particle that is often translated and in our English versions. However, the Hebrew particle has several other usages. In our passage, it is used 
to indicate that the Lord's instruction to Moses follows sequentially to Israel's crossing of the Red Sea through a dry ground and ensuing pursuit of the Egyptian army by entering the dry ground through which Israel crossed and the Lord drowning them or actually first throwing them into panic before drowning them. Hence it is appropriate, appropriate for us to begin verse 26 with the word then in the sense of after that, after that, where that refers to Israel's complete crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground as implied in the sentence of Exodus 14 verse 22. Again it reads, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now the Lord's instruction to Moses was doing the same thing that he did before the Red Sea was divided into two, as we read in Exodus 14:26, when he said, Stretch out your hand over the sea. Now this instruction is one that required Moses to raise his staff in a symbolic way over the sea before the Lord acts. Now it is not merely for him to stretch his hand, but to raise the staff that was in his hand. Now we are sure of this interpretation because of the instruction the Lord used to divide the sea involved Moses raising his staff and so his hand as we can also gather from the same Exodus 14, look at verse 16. Exodus 14, verse 16. It reads, Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Thus, when Moses, I mean, when the Lord commanded Moses to stretch his hand over the sea. Moses understood the Lord to mean that he should raise his staff uh, and so he sang over the sea. Now the Lord did not have to reference the raising of the staff because Moses understood that the miraculous acts of God through him will involve his staff in accordance to what the Lord told him when he commissioned him according to Exodus chapter 4 verse 17. Exodus chapter 4 verse 17. It is, But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. So the point is that although the Lord did not repeat to Moses the instruction that involves raising his staff, he understood that that is implied in the instruction of stretching out his hand over the sea in a symbolic manner. Now many times our Lord is gracious to us that he will explain to us his reason for a given instruction, although being sovereign, he did not have to give any explanation 
for any instruction he gives us. Doesn't have to. It is for this reason, of being gracious though, that the Lord explained to Moses the reason for the instruction of raising his staff and his hand over the sea, as we read in the clause of Exodus where we're starting 14 verse 26. He says, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Now this sentence means the waters of the sea were to return to their normal position or level. You see, the sentence, so that the water may flow back over the Egyptians, is more literally from the Hebrew, and let the waters return over the Egyptians. And let the waters return over the Egyptians. This is because the expression flow back of the NIV is translated from a Hebrew word that is basically a verb of motion with the meaning of to return or to come back or to go back. Now the meaning to turn back has several uh, senses in some contexts. For example, it could mean to retrace one's course or path of travel. It is probably in this sense that the word is used in Joshua's capture of Hazor, as we read in Joshua chapter 11, verse 10. Joshua chapter 11, verse 10. Joshua chapter 11, verse 10 reads, At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put his king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Now the meaning to turn back may mean really to retreat as in the petition of the psalmist to God to intervene in the activities of his people that are oppressed as recorded in Psalm 74 verse 21. Psalm 74 verse 21. Psalm 74 verse 21 reads, Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. See that expression, do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. It's literally from the Hebrew. Do not let the oppressed turn back humiliated. Turn back humiliated. Now the meaning to turn back though may mean, may have the sense of to repent, to repent. As prophet Jeremiah used it to describe the stubbornness of God's covenant people and that they did not pay Attention to God's discipline. As we read in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 3. 
Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 3 It is our oh lord do not your eyes look for truth you struck them but they felt no pain you crushed them but they refused correction they made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent See that verbal phrase refuse to repent is literally they have refused to turn back. In other words, there are people, I mean they were in Israel, as a whole, God kept bringing judgment one after the other, they never flinched. Something happens to a whole lot of believers today. Uh, God keeps trying to get your attention, it's this, it's that on your life, but you just dismiss them, say, Oh, it just it just happened. He's trying to get your attention. And that's why they say here, they refuse creation. No matter what happens, they chuck it up into something else. Anyway, the verbal phrase then uh, reminds us of this fact that there are people who refuse to repent. Now in our passage of Exodus 14 verse 26, so the uh, word means to return in the sense of the waters of the sea coming back to their original position. The impact of this return of the waters to the original position is the drowning of the Egyptians and their military equipment. So in any case, the first proposition we are considering is that God's decided judgment usually involves instruction or instructions to his chosen agent that he uses in his judgment. Thus we have seen that the Lord communicated to Moses what to do to bring about God's judgment that he had decided to bring on the Egyptian army. Now this proposition is supported though by other judgments of God as conveyed in the scripture. In other words, this principle or proposition is not only confined to this passage. We find it in other places in the scripture. Now the Lord decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their homosexual activities. Therefore, he instructed two angels to go go there and carry it out. As implied in their statement to Lot in Genesis chapter 19 verses 12 and 13. Genesis chapter 19 verses 12 to 13. It is the two men said to Lot do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belong to you. Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his, his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. See the phrase, the two men here, refers to angels. 
as we, have, as we can learn from the description of the two men that came to Sodom, that you can go, go back to verse 1 of chapter 19. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, the two angels, these are the ones defined as the men, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now we are not given though the instruction of the Lord to the two angels, but the fact they came to Sodom meant that the Lord had given an instruction to them regarding the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah that he had decided would take place. Now you take another example. The Lord had decided to bring judgment on Israel in a form of plague because of ill-fated census of King David. So he first instructed prophet God to convey to David his coming judgment on Israel, although the judgment is presented in form of three options of punishment that David was to choose from, as we may gather from Second Samuel chapter 24, verses 11 and 12. Second Samuel Second Samuel Chapter 24, verses 11 and 12. It reads, Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came up, uh, had come to, go, uh, to guide the prophet, David said, Go and tell David, This is what the Lord says, I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Now the law had already decided what the punishment would be. So it is not like, uh, so much that David was going to make a choice that will violate God's determined judgment. In fact, the narrative indicated that David did not make any choice but left God to act in accordance with his plan. So anyway, God acted in that he sent an angel to bring a plague on Israel, still according to that second Samuel, look at chapter two, chapter twenty four, look at verses fifteen and sixteen. Verse fifteen reads So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated and 70,000 of the people from Dan to uh, Beersheba died when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people enough, withdraw your hand the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Erona the genocide. Again, we really have no information regarding the instruction of the Lord to the angel that he sent to execute judgment. But certainly, the angel involved received instruction from the Lord 
Now this instruction he received is implied in the clause of verse 16 here, where he said, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem. So the angel would not have acted without the Lord sending him to execute his judgment on Israel. Still, you can see that an agent is commanded to do something. Now still, though, take another example. When the Lord brought drought and famine in Israel for three years, during the reign of King Ahab, because of idolatry, he instructed prophet Elijah to act, as we may deduce from 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. First Kings Chapter 17 verse 1 It is now Elijah the Tishbite From Tishbe In Gilead Said to Ahab As the Lord The God of Israel Lives Whom I serve there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now it is true that we do not have any direct statement that indicated God instructed Elijah to do anything. But really that's implied. You see, Elijah will not on his own had gone to Ahab with the message that he delivered. Unless the Lord instructed him. So a judgment was coming. Decided. And God sends the prophet. Like I said. We were not told how he sent him. But uh, he communicated to him. To him go deliver that message. And so that's why he came and said. There will be no rain. There will be, I mean there will be famine really. Until he speaks. Uh, his word again. That's from the Lord. Anyway. So the examples we have cited so far involve nations. But the uh, the proposition that God's decided judgment usually involves instruction to his chosen agent that he uses in his judgment that we are considering is also applicable to individuals. All the ones we looked at mostly on nations. Or mostly on nations. But my point is, it also applies to individuals. Now, a good illustration of the truth of the proposition that we are considering that it is uh, applicable to individuals is the decided judgment on Eli, the priest. And he, not only him, but also his family line, that a lot brought some judgment because he will not discipline his sons as he should. A failure, the Lord considered honoring his sons more than him. Now one of those things that if you, uh, some of the uh, troublemakers, if you want to use that term, that we find in the Old Testament, 
the two glaring examples is that if you look at them, there's a common thread. Their father let them do whatever they wanted to do. They didn't discipline them. And God did that himself anyway. Uh, the, the case we're seeing here is Eli's son. The other one we're not going to see, but it's Absalom. David didn't really discipline Absalom the way he should. And look at what happened with the life of Absalom. Anyway, so here in the case of Eli and his family is because he did not discipline his, his uh, sons. Consequently, the Lord instructed an unnamed prophet to deliver the message of God's decided judgment or punishment on Eli and his descendants. As stated in 4 Samuel chapter 2 verses 27 through 33. First Samuel chapter 2 verses 27 through 33. It is now a man of God, that's a prophet, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an effort in my presence. I also Gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why, look at the thing, why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the trespass of every Offering made by my people Israel. In other words, the issue is there's a procedure that should be followed regarding the meat of the sacrifice, but his sons wouldn't, especially two of them, they wouldn't even listen. They just do whatever they wanted to do. And Eli, uh, Eli at this point, uh, he was a little bit old, but uh, he didn't do anything with them. He would just talk to them, and that's, that's it. When there are other things he could have done, but then that's what happens is uh, before children or when they are adults, they start to get into trouble. It started when they were young because the parents didn't do anything. They were, I mean, they didn't do what they're supposed to do in terms of discipline them. Anyway, verse 30 says, Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and your father's house will minister before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, Far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me, 
will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house. So there, there will be not, there will not be any, uh, I mean, an old man in your family line. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to uh, blind your eyes with the tears and to grieve your heart. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Because Eli saw that. Because by the time you get to the third chapter, Israel goes into war. Fourth chapter, they are in a war. And then what happened? The two sons were killed. Because they, you know, God said, that's what I'm going to do. He said, decided judgment. Because if you read the, uh, the rest of that narrative, you, dis- you discover that the, the Bible says, because God had decided for them to kill them. Therefore, they wouldn't even pay attention to the little that their father told them. So that is what we call decided judgment. When, God, when that happens, you can tell a person all you want. You can advise them, explain this and explain that. They're not going anywhere. It is a decided and it will take place. Anyway, the judgment or punishment announced here was fulfilled. So we have the case of God's decided judgment announced through an unnamed prophet. Another example of instructing an agent that God uses in his judgment or decided judgment is that of the, the uh, King David. That's an individual. King David. We read the one that his nation was judged because of his action. But this is on him as an individual. Now after his adultery and murder, the Lord instructed Prophet Nathan to communicate to David God's decided judgment or punishment, as we may read in Second Samuel chapter twelve, verses nine through twelve. Second Samuel chapter twelve. Verses 9 through 12. Here it is, it says, this is the prophet Nathan speaking, because he is the agent that God used to deliver his message of judgment. Verse 9 reads, Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 
Now one of the things though, before I finish reading the rest is, this decided judgment, yeah, at least uh, a rough uh, uh, estimate is it took about 10 years for this judgment to take place. Because everything God said to David happened. But it, it was in a series of about 10 years or a little uh, more that all that happened to him. Because he, God says that the uh, sword, in a sense, will not depart from his house. What that means is, Saul was going to be somebody killing someone in his house. So we know that, that all that took place because Absalom, uh, Ammon raped the half-sister. Absalom got mad. They killed him. And then Absalom himself got killed. And even after he uh, we think that that ended, but that really wasn't the case because Solomon eventually killed another brother. So it is what God said. It's going to be there. This is why we all have to be very careful. Now it didn't happen overnight. It took time. So again, again I said we all have to be careful knowing that God is not like you and uh, uh, and me, that we, somebody do something, we just react immediately. God has a, a time by which he can do whatever he wants to do. Anyway, verse 11 again, he reads, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Anyway, the judgments, punishments, and as here were fully fulfilled exactly. So we know that what the prophet Nathan announced concerned decided judgment. Of God. Hence, we can be sure then of the truthfulness of the first proposition, which is that God's decided judgment usually involves instruction or instructions to his chosen agent that he uses in his judgment. So, what this means is that anytime we observe National disaster. We should recognize that such takes place because God instructed an agent to act. The agent chosen could be human or angelic. You see, there are disasters that take place that we describe as man-made because... A human agent brings it about somewhere, somehow. However, the truth is that the human agent acted as God's agent to bring about his decided judgment on a locale or on a nation. Of course, 
In case of other disasters that are not attributed to humans, we can be sure that God had instructed an angelic being to act. See, we see all these things, wind and all that. God sends out angels they direct which way they go in order to accomplish his purpose. So what I'm saying though is, is simply this, that we should recognize that God can use angelic being to act. Furthermore, an implication of this proposition that we're considering is that teachers of the word of God are agents of God that should announce to people from the scripture God's decided judgment as a warning to be careful of how we live. There is one that I have many, many times, I bring it every now and then. It is a decided judgment of God. Nothing is going to change it. And so, we should be careful to pay attention to those kind of things. Now, it's a good example of God's decided judgment is the spiritual law of sowing and reaping. That's a decided judgment. The law of sowing and reaping. God decided judgment is that if we sow, we will reap what we sowed. Count on it. That's why all of us have to be very careful. We never get away with anything. Actually, really, no one gets away with anything on this planet. As I've tried to explain to some of you, the problem is we are not around to see that people didn't get, a, get away with anything. You cannot sow and not reap it. And again, the, what I always remind us is, yeah, somebody can, during the spring, you can plant corn, maybe within three months you harvested it. Plant an apple tree, you don't get anything in the next five years or more. Now that's the same thing. It all depends on what we planted and what God is going to do. So what that means is think about whatever you do. There's a consequence that we're going to reap what we sow. That is a decided judgment. So what I'm saying is this law will always be true. So if a person knows of this decided judgment of God, the person could avoid suffering in life by being careful of what one does. Now this aside, I don't know most of uh, if you are old like most of us, well, I would say I wish I knew this a, little, a whole lot longer in my life. Maybe there are a lot of things I'm reaping that I wouldn't reap. Anyway, this aside, the point is that the first proposition we stated is one that is also verified in other passages of scripture. So that brings me to the second proposition. The second proposition is that God's chosen agent associated with his judgment certainly obeys his instruction leading to the inescapable punishment. Again, the, the second proposition that God's chosen agent 
associated with his decided judgment certainly obeys his instruction, leading to the inescapable punishment. In effect, there is no way that God's chosen agent will not obey his instruction. Anyway, this second proposition is evident in God's, uh, in, I mean, in Moses' obedience to God and his instruction. Now, Moses' obedience is stated in the first sentence of where we are starting in Exodus chapter 14, look at verse 27 again. It reads, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Now, someone may say that the word obey or obedience is not used in the sentence. And so, that I should not declare that Moses obeyed uh, God's instruction. Well, if you think that way, let me dissuade you of such a notion. Now, what is obedience? What is it? Is it not doing exactly what one is asked or told to do? That's what obedience is. So, the Lord instructed Moses to stretch his hand in a symbolic way over the sea. Now, our sentence indicated that he did so. He did so. Therefore, we are correct to say then that Moses obeyed God's instruction. The point is that what God had decided to, when he had decided to bring judgment or punishment, the agent or agents that he uses in cause of the judgment or punishment certainly obeys him. Now, the examples we cited uh, previously proved the point. The two angels obeyed the Lord because they went to Sodom and carried out the instruction of the Lord to them about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the angel sent to bring a plague on Israel because of David's ill-fated uh, senses obeyed. So did Prophet Gad. Now Prophet Elijah, despite the risk of going to Ahab, complied with God's instruction. So, we contend that it is impossible for an agent that God uses to bring about his judgment not to obey God in carrying out whatever assignment is given to the specific agent. Now, Moses' obedience to God's instruction to stretch his hand in a symbolic manner over the sea have three related results. The first result is because the waters of the Red Sea returning to east, uh, to the normal uh, level by daybreak, as stated in Exodus 14, verse 27. Look where it reads, At daybreak, the sea went back to its place. Now, this closing implies that the water in the sea returned to its normal level. The father of the sea returned to its normal level at daybreak means that the Israelites saw clearly that the Lord destroyed the Egyptian army. The second result was the movement of the Egyptian army towards Egypt and away from the Israelites. It is this result that is given in the last sentence of Exodus 14:27, where it says, the Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. So the translation of the NIV, though, 
may be misunderstood to imply that the Egyptians must have passed through the sea, but on noticing that the water was uh, returning to its normal level, decided to head back towards Egypt before they were swept away. However, the situation was that as soon as the Egyptian army saw that the water was returning to its normal level, they began to flee away from the Israelites towards Egypt. Now thus, the sentence, when he said the Egyptians were fleeing toward it, may be better translated, the Egyptians were fleeing before it. Were fleeing before it. This is the way the New English Translation rendered it. Or, the New Century Version rendered it this way. The Egyptians tried to run from it. So it is the returning water that they are running from. So anyway, the Egyptian army attempted them to escape from disaster, more or less, but the Lord would not permit them to do so. So he walked in such a way that they could not possibly escape, as that is what is meant in the sentence, the Lord swept them into the sea. They tried, but they said, decided judgment. It cannot be escaped. Now the total result is the ultimate destruction of the Egyptian army. This destruction is described in two ways. The first is the drowning of the Egyptian army as described in the first sentence of Exodus 14 verse 28. Look at it, it says, The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the uh, the Israelites into the sea. Now the sentence, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, is really an explanation of what it means that the sea returned in its normal uh, reference level as mentioned in verse 27. Thus the water returned and the result was the drowning of the Egyptian army and their military Equipment. Now, our use of the word drown is because of the word covered, covered, of verse 28. That word is translated from a Hebrew word with several meanings. For example, the word may mean to hide, as the psalmist used it to indicate he did not keep the Lord's righteousness, that is, God's way or Will he did not keep that secret to himself, as we read in Psalm chapter 40, verse 10. Psalms chapter 40, verse 10. It is, I do not hide. That's a Hebrew word, kasha. The here, that's translated drown. Uh, drown. Oh, that I translate drown or covered in the energy. Say, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. In our passage of Exodus 
The word really means to cover or to cover over. Now if water in the sea covers over soldiers and chariots and horsemen, that means they were drowned. So anyway, we are informed that the entire army of Pharaoh drowned since the entire army had pursued the Israelites to the middle of the sea. There's no doubt that all the army was destroyed because of the last sentence of Exodus 14:28 says not one of them survived. Hence, we are certain that the destruction of the Egyptian army was that the athletes that was in the pursuit of the Israelites was total. Now we do not know if the entire Egyptian army was destroyed in the sense that all the military personnel was involved in the pursuit of the Israelites. We don't know that. Now it is possible that Pharaoh did not mobilize all his army but went with the best or majority of his army. Now if this is the case, then there might have been some soldiers left in Egypt. But if all of them or the army was in pursuit of the Israelites, then every one of them perished. Now one thing that the Egyptian army did not recognize that spelled their doom is that the Israelites acted in faith. They were just pursuing them, mindless, not knowing these people were acting in faith. And but the Egyptian army just, just chasing them. But we know that they acted in faith because of what the human author Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 29. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 29 It is by faith the people, that's Israel passed through the Red Sea as on dry land but when the Egyptians tried to do so they were drowned so the Egyptians tried to mimic or they tried mimicking Israel without their faith. And the result was disastrous. Now this really should caution all of us to be careful of mimicking even another believer without acting in faith as the one being mimicked. In other words, you see a fellow believer do something, so I'm just going to do that. But you're not... You're not imitating that person's faith. And that way you get yourself in trouble. So I'm saying that you should be careful to copy a fellow believer without being sure that you understand the basis of the operation of the believer. Now be that as it may, we are certain then that all the soldiers that pursued Israel into the sea perished. But the question remains though, if Pharaoh himself also died. Now you get all the commentators, they find all kinds of things all over the place. Anyway, see this is because there's no direct statement in this narrative that indicates 
that Pharaoh drowned with his soldiers. But because his death in the sea with his army will better fulfill the promise of God gaining glory through Pharaoh and his army. Pharaoh must have drowned with his army. Now it is if Pharaoh died with his army that what Moses said to Israel about the fate of the Egyptians uh, pursuing uh, the Egyptian army that pursued them will really be fulfilled and I'm referring to what is is recorded in Exodus uh, 14 that we're studying. Look at verse 13. Exodus chapter 14 verse 13. It is, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Now the Egyptians included Pharaoh. So, for this to be true, he must also have died. So these arguments that we have, uh, we have made don't make sense. But the greatest reason we are sure Pharaoh drowned is that the Holy Spirit says so through the psalmist. In Psalm 136, verse 15. Psalms 136, verse 15. Psalms 136, verse 15 reads, They swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love endures forever. So all in all, God kept his word with the destruction of the entire Egyptian army that pursued Israel. Hence, the message we have expanded, which is that God's decided judgment or punishment is inescapable. Now this should remind us that God's decided judgment, that those who do not believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will spend eternity in the lake of fire is inescapable. So, if you have not believed in Christ, you should do so knowing that he decided judgment of suffering in the lake of fire is inescapable without faith in Christ. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to be aware, to be more careful, knowing that your decided judgment is inescapable so that we will be mindful of your laws, your word, your warnings in a way to bring glory to you. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen.